0: And welcome to The Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper. On today's episode, I talk to controversial journalist Rania Kalik about her reporting in Syria and Iraq. But first, my co-host, Gabe Pacheco, and I talk about Russiagate hysteria, Syria hysteria, and the film The Death of Stalin. You can hear The Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI. You can find The Katie Halper Show on iTunes, where you can rate and review us. You can find us on soundcloud you can find us on facebook you can find us on twitter my handle is kthelps that's letter k letter t h-a-l-p-s the handle of my co-hosts is gabe underscore pacheco you can use the hashtag KTHelpShow. show make sure that you let us know the questions that you want to ask our guests speaking of which make sure you listen to our bonus episode which you can find at patreon.com slash the Helper show again that's patreon.com slash the Helper show there ranya responds to your questions from twitter and sadly we weren't able to respond to all of the hate tweets that she got, but we very much take it into consideration that people think it is a thought crime and a hate crime to oppose intervening in Syria. I saw the death of Stalin. Mm-hmm. Um, the film is by Armando Iannucci, who did uh, Veep. It's about you know, preparing for his funeral, basically, for Stalin's funeral.
1: Stalin's dead. He's
0: dead. Stalin is dead! It's with Steve Buscemi as Khrushchev.
1: I'm the peacemaker, and I'll
0: fuck up anyone who gets in my way. I you're a,
2: you're a tanky though, so you were sad at the beginning when Stalin I was, was died. was
0: tragedy. Oh, my God. I refuse. I, I'm offended that they made that into a, a comedy.
1: Our general secretary is lying in a puddle of indignity.
0: You don't do that? No, I'm fine with Stalin death comedies. I just thought... Um, and I'm not a Stalinist. My problem with the film was that it didn't commit either way. So it started out kind of pretty comedic. It was comedic and then it got serious and I couldn't really like sink my teeth into it, genre-wise.
2: For me, I liked how uh, black a comedy it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, just, I like things that are super bleak. And I, I like that no matter who won, it had this, like, aliens versus predator feeling for me. Like, oh, whoever wins, it's still going to be, like, a terrible system that they're right. under. Right. I like the sort of bleak picture that it painted of um, the Soviet Union at that time with the roundups and the purgings. Shoot her
3: before him, but make sure he sees it. Kill him, dump him in the pulpit, and I'll leave the rest
0: up to you. I'm not offended, per se, by making humor out of show trials and torturing people. Yeah. <laughs> comedy equals tragedy plus time. But I don't know if I thought it was that. I guess I didn't think it was that funny.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, well, it, it wasn't a slapstick comedy. So, you know, it depends. If you like comedies that are super, super, super uh, dry yeah. and dark. Yeah.
0: Then this is this is, this is right yeah, up, up your, your alley. alley. Yeah.
2: And also, if your sensibility is thinking that um, politics is full of idiots... regardless of the party yeah then this this again you know fits into that and kind of echoes um his sentiments in veep only imagine if veep took place in a totalitarian uh political right system
0: yeah i wonder how much of this is going to land on the russia obsessed people like the russian gay people
2: i think it humanizes the oh good (laughs) okay good yeah you know all right cool it's so funny that uh, I, I never know like where Democrats stand on Russia because the last couple months we've just been seeing that somehow Russia has uh, completely manipulated our political system and that Trump is a Russian Manchurian candidate and now that um, he's bombed Syria and, and gotten uh, explicitly made Russia our enemy again. Uh, you'd think that Democrats would be happy because it seems like they just wanted us to go to war with Russia. I mean, I don't know what else
0: yeah, they could want. Yeah, it's other hard than- to understand their, it's really embarrassing, honestly, is what it is. I mean, we had, uh, I spoke to Max Blumenthal and we were talking about this. Like if, if Trump is this existential threat, uh, unprecedented existential threat, and Putin is just very evil, then wh- what do we want? We want them to go to war with each other?
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean like put your money where your mouth is, all right? Yeah. Uh it's Pearl Harbor, it's 911. Okay, if it's Pearl Harbor or 911, then we immediately have to go to war with a nuclear exactly. power, have World War 3, and you know, the the opening scene of Terminator 2 becomes our reality.
0: If what happened with the Russian troll farms is the new Pearl Harbor, as some people say it is. Some people have said that congressman jerry nadler compared it to pearl harbor
3: imagine if fdr uh, had denied that the japanese attacked us at pearl harbor and, and didn't react that's the equivalent
2: it's uh, uh, i mean you know but there's no no servicemen absolutely not comparable. Uh, dying yeah. in capsized
0: well, <laughs>
2: <laughs> naval ships
0: it's actually pretty funny chris hayes is like well it's a
3: bit of a different thing
0: well it's different
3: It didn't kill anyone
0: yeah and, and, and that jerry nadler is like no it's not no it's not like yeah. no it's not different.
3: It is very much on par.
2: Aren't we um, Pearl Harboring Syria right now?
0: Oh by yeah. I mean if you want cruise exactly, missiles at yeah. it. And as Max said, if this is the new Pearl Harbor is if having some Russian hot dog vendor, you know, set up some troll farms if that's a new Pearl Harbor, then what that means is that we have to immediately go to war with the nuclear power Putin. I think this could be a whole genre of literature. Just liberal brain rot. Before the bombing, shortly before the bombings, Donald Trump said, if President Obama had crossed his stated red line in the sand, the Syrian disaster would have ended long ago. Animal Assad would have been history. Howard Dean tweets back at, at uh, Trump saying, if you had done your job consistently, this would not have happened. Why are you such a wimp in the face of Assad and Putin? So
2: so it's like the Democrats are prodding yeah. uh, Trump. They're egging him on to start a war.
0: Right. Howard Dean wants tweeted uh that Donald Trump during the debate was sniffing a lot maybe he was a cokehead he made a little funny tweet about that maybe you don't want this guy overseeing a war right? it's
2: like they're negging him <laughs> yeah uh to make him do something that's really horrible so it's like yeah. it's like coaxing like coaxing a bully to fight
0: yeah exactly it's like saying like this bully is the worst guy in the world too bad he's such a wimp and like gay for Putin. That's the other thing is like, I don't need another, If I have to see another stupid thing about like Donald Trump and Putin kissing each other or hugging each other. The joke being that they're gay for each other. It's just so stupid. In
3: fact, the only thing your mouth is good for is being Vladimir Putin's <laughs> holster.
0: That's like the biggest thing to come out of this. It's like... Uh,
2: homophobic punchlines.
0: Homophobic punchlines, like egging on evil... You can't describe someone as an unhinged uh, dictator, mercurial, unpredictable dictator. (laughs) By the way, I would also like you, evil person, do you mind dropping some bombs on Syria while you're at it? Yeah. Like the New York Times, like their editorial board, it was like, the law is coming, Mr. Trump. And mm. I did like. But a, before
2: they get, before exactly. you get impeached, can you sneak some cruise that, missiles that's across ex- yeah. that border? I,
0: I like added a thing on on Instagram. I like annotated it. And I was like, but but in the meantime, would you mind dropping some bombs on Syria? Like, what do you what do, what do you guys want?
2: They want to keep keep the blood flowing.
0: Yeah, they do. I feel like those people I used to roll my eyes at who were always like, it's one party, it's a corporate, it's a corporate militaristic party, and it's two wings of the same party: the Democrats and the Republicans. And I always, like, knew that, but I always thought it was an oversimplification, kind of.
2: I mean, do you want war crimes with, uh, you know— <laughs> Would you like do you choice taken away with war your— crimes right, or do you, right. you want? Uh... Would you like an
0: abortion on the side with your war crime or not? Because if you want the abortions on the side, <laughs> vote Democrat. If you want the abortions taken away, vote Republican. Yeah. I mean, and we have this weird thing where, like, Panetta, who was o- Obama's CIA director, Panetta likes Pompeo—
3: Mike Pompeo, from an intelligence point of view, has probably the best perspective on Kim and North Korea.
0: And Rand Paul is, like, critical of him.
3: One of the things I liked about President Trump and still
0: do
2: like is that he continues to say the Iraq war was a mistake. But when you say it's a mistake, basically what you're saying is that regime change in the Middle East leads often to unintended consequences. Well he keeps appointing people around him who love the Iraq war so much that they're ready for a war with Iran next. And so I don't think you really want people who are eager for war to be running the State Department. You want a diplomat. I frankly think that Pompeo's positions are too much of an advocate for regime change really everywhere. North Korea, Iran, Russia, you name it.
0: I mean, that's not that surprising because Rand Paul is one of those guys who has scary, scary, scary politics, except when it comes to foreign policy stuff, not because he's like an internationalist or peacenik at all.
2: There are many people over at the CIA that I would vote for. In fact, probably most career nominees from the CIA, I think, would be fine.
0: He's just a brutal, like, isolationist libertarian, but he will have better positions on foreign policy than most Dems. Similarly, in this weird inverted world, like literally the only remotely mainstream cable voices that are critical of the war in Syria are... Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram.
3: Well, virtually all of official Washington, Republicans and Democrats, have united behind the idea that the United States has a moral obligation to go deeper into war in Syria. We already have thousands of troops in Syria, though you wouldn't know it. But it's true, we do. And one American soldier has already died in Syria. We've killed hundreds of Russian citizens so far there and lobbed in a series of cruise missiles. But that's not enough, the pundits say. We need a real war, something big and deadly primarily to avenge the Syrian President Assad's poison gas attack on his own citizens over the weekend. The
0: only people who are skeptical about the the stories that claim that there are chemical weapons attacks, which I don't put beyond Assad, but I'm not sure if all of the ones that people are claiming he did, he did do, are Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham.
2: There are atrocities committed every day all over the
0: world, and yet we go in again with a military strike a year after a previous military strike. And I guess it feels good because there are horrible things happening there. But what do we really accomplish here tonight in Syria? Retired Colonel Douglas McGregor. Well,
3: uh, I find the whole thing perplexing. I mean, first of all, just a week after the president announces his intention to withdraw troops from Syria, suddenly the Syrian government that has effectively won the civil war, the civil war is practically over, decides to launch a chemical attack. Uh, Seems very odd. Then we see sarin and chlorine gas used together. Uh, that's never happened before. That's the first in the history of chemical warfare. doesn't make any sense. And we picked targets that I think, in retrospect, will turn out perhaps not to be what we thought. So I think this is another cosmetic attack that makes the morally righteous in Washington feel good, but changes nothing on the ground.
0: Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram should not be the voices in the wilderness.
2: The voices of resistance
0: yeah of like anti-war
3: before we go to war are we sure all of this is real do we really know that assad was behind the gas attack it's not a defense of assad but it's an obvious question how could we know that conclusively so soon after the attack happened we didn't have any americans on the ground and why would Assad do that given the certainty it would hurt his own interests?
0: A lot, a lot of dominoes falling in the Middle East and it, it, sometimes w- it, what it feels good in the moment, the Iraq war, which I was all in favor of, then all of a sudden you look at four years later, you're like what the heck, what the What? what's ISIS? <laughs> what's <laughs> we- so yeah, I don't know, I have this weird premonition that um, replacing a secular dictator in a Middle Eastern country um, and ousting him uh, won't end well, I don't know why. Nah, um- there's no money in peace come on that's true
1: yeah
0: this interview was recorded a couple weeks ago but it's still totally relevant sadly really excited to be talking to ranya ranya kalak is an American journalist based in the Middle East. She also hosts the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. She's been reporting from Iraq and Syria, but it's only her reporting on Syria, which seems to piss everyone off. So, Rania, welcome (laughs) back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Katie, it's great to be on again. I wish I could make it to New York to like visit, but I have to leave next
0: week. You've taken a lot of criticism and you've been really slammed for your reporting and your opinions on Syria, but before we get into that, can you just tell us what you've experienced in Iraq?
1: Yeah, no, that, Iraq is relatively stable right now in spite of the instability the U.S. created, and it took 15 years. I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, the U.S. destroyed Iraq and caused the and created the conditions on the ground for a civil war in that country, a country that had previously never had civil wars before. Um, and it, people killed each other. People, I mean, everybody in Iraq was tough. People just, like, slaughtered each other for years as a result. And the Americans slaughtered Iraqis, and it took a really, really long time. I mean, yeah, 15 years later. Um, Iraq is still a, a Iraqis- I mean, I'm not trying to say it's a stable utopia, but it's not... you know, ISIS doesn't exist anymore. There's not a civil war taking place in Iraq anymore, and it's finally starting to emerge uh, from the trauma of the last 15 years and hopefully moving in the most stable direction. That is completely in spite, not because of the U.S. intervention in that country. Basically, The U.S. invasion of Iraq is what created the conditions for the arrival of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was a far more brutal organization than the original Al-Qaeda of, like, Osama bin Laden. This is the Al-Qaeda in Iraq of, like, of um, Zarqawi. And this is where, like, Al-Qaeda started beheading people and killing Shias, which is sort of the Al-Qaeda you have today. This is the Al-Qaeda franchise, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, that ultimately evolved into the Islamic State. But that's not the entirety of the story. Uh, although that's kind of like the accepted narrative to some degree of people who are willing to admit the Iraq war did lead to the creation of ISIS. It's not the entire story. What the U.S. did in Libya and particularly Syria, um, were, were, um, important for the creation of ISIS as well. Um, by destabilizing Libya and flooding it with weapons, those weapons ultimately made their ways towards to uh, fighters in Syria that were fighting to overthrow the government. But more, more importantly, what the U.S. did in Syria was it joined with its regional allies Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey, to try and basically fund and arm this insurgency to overthrow the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad. And this insurgency was Islamist, and those are the, the forces that the Gulf states and the U.S. traditionally like to arm. Um, and uh, basically these insurgencies, armed insurgents, expelled the Syrian government, expelled the Syrian state from large parts of Syria, and created these power vacuums where ultimately al-Qaeda and ISIS, the most powerful insurgent groups in Syria, took over. Um, and uh, a lot of this was also able to happen because of the role of Turkey, which the U.S. sort of, like, allowed to happen and looked away from, uh, which is to allow foreign fighters to flood into Syria through the Turkish border, like tens of thousands of foreign fighters from over 80 different countries. And these are the people who ended up joining the ranks of ISIS, um, and to some degree al-Qaeda in Syria. But basically, uh, once they had these areas of Syria that they could take over because of the U.S. Uh, policy of creating uh, areas where the state collapsed in Syria, um, they were they started kidnapping a lot of people, including Westerners, and ransoming them. Um, and I'm talking about ISIS now. And they were able to really like get some startup funding to consolidate their forces in eastern Syria, and then use that to basically. Uh, invade Iraq, <laughs> or re-invade Iraq, I should say, and take over large territories of Iraq. And that's how ISIS formed. Um, and the U.S. intelligence agencies knew this was taking place. A lot of Western intelligence agencies knew, um, and it was sort of a gamble. But it was sort of a tug-of-war between the, the desire to overthrow the Syrian government. Um, and, you know, also there's, you know, then there's sort of a, like a tug-of-war inside the Obama administration about what we should do in Syria. And it became clearly with the rise of ISIS. It became clear that if you do the Syrian government, that's who will take over. Um, And that would be a U.S. national security threat. And so um, there was this constant like back and forth about what we should do. And so the policy in Syria ultimately ended up being just to kind of like continue to arm the insurgents enough to keep the war going.
0: There's a a thing that's hard for people to get, which is that like, uh, although we learned the lesson I saw in Iraq, which is you can have a very bad guy in power. You can have a dictator in power, but you can also understand that overthrowing said dictator will not lead to more stability or peace. It will exacerbate everything. I had Phyllis Bennis on the show who said there's horror on both sides. We don't hear about it when it's committed by the U.S. or our allies. We can't win the war in Syria. We have to end the war in Syria. But can you kind of give an honest assessment of how you can both be critical of Assad and also anti-intervention?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, the Syrian government has a, is very, very flawed. Um, I, I mean, no one really argues against that, including, actual, like, including Syrians in Syria. They know their government's flawed. It's an authoritarian government. It's a police state. Uh, there's not room for political dissent. Uh, people are tortured. Um, it's basically, I mean, the kind of government you have across the Middle East. I, there are, I mean, that's just the way it is, unfortunately. Like, across the Middle East, you have many authoritarian governments. And that's kind of actually typical of the global south in general. A lot of post-colonial states have authoritarian governments. And that's unfortunate. And that does absolutely need to change. The Syrian government should, it should change. Um, but the issue isn't whether the Syrian government is good or bad. The issue is what do you want to place it with? If, you know, and and, and, the, and in the case of the U.S. and Western powers and the regional allies, they were trying to replace the government in Syria with a collection of Salafi jihadist groups that would have led to a more authoritarian, a theocratically authoritarian, um and in some cases, genocidal uh, regime, if you will, in Syria. Uh, and so it's about what the alternative is, and for the majority of Syrians, Now, that you speak to who live inside government areas of Syria, which is where the vast majority of Syrians live, like over 80%, perhaps 90%, live in government-held areas. A lot of people took refuge in government-held areas of Syria because the areas where the insurgents took over were chaotic and um, unstable and full of conflict. Um, Anyways, the point is, is the alternative was not preferable to the current government. The current government, in their opinion it's better because it's stable. To really notice I don't think people understand like what it means to collapse a state because the Syrian state isn't just the Assad regime, right? The Syrian state is also water infrastructure. Uh the Syrian state is also the electricity infrastructure. The Syrian state is also education. It's also medical facilities. It's also, you know, there's a lot that goes in to what makes up a state. It's basic local law and order. Uh, that allows people to go about their daily lives without criminal gangs, um, you know, robbing people in the streets. I mean, I know it sounds a little bit cartoonish, but it's true. That's like that. And, and, you know, when you collapse the state, all of those things go away. Um, And it's really difficult to rebuild those things, uh, especially when there isn't an alternative in place. And in Syria, not only was there not an alternative in place, but the alternative ended up becoming, because there was no alternative in place, basically, like I said, a a collection of criminal Salafi jihadist gangs that made people's lives miserable. So, I mean, that's the best way I can I can explain that.
0: Um. They did the same thing. If you were critical of the war in Iraq, you obviously loved Saddam Hussein, and you had, like, you know, pictures of yourself with him, or, like, <laughs> and it's, like, amazing, because you actually have people like Samantha Power saying, like, see the case for opposing U.S. strikes in Syria. Trump is anti-Muslim, deceitful, trigger-happy. He lacks a Syria plan and any seeming regard for international or domestic law. But please share views on what U.S., should do to deter CW massacres, chemical weapons massacres.
1: Like the whole premise of something has to be done about Syria basically erases the fact that the U.S. is already doing something in Syria. For the last seven years, the U.S. have been arming and funding, like I said, like arming and funding to the tune of a billion dollars a year um, through like these uh, intelligence centers in in Turkey and Jordan, uh, a collection of what ultimately turned out to be Salafi jihadi groups. Across Syria and oftentimes calling them moderate rebels. One of the moderate rebel groups the U.S. was fund- funding at one point was Noral al Zinki, which is a Salafi jihadist group that became famous after they beheaded a Palestinian teenager on video and proudly so. Um, so like, it'd be, I mean, the U.S. was funding basically death squads, genocidal death squads in Syria. That's um, kind of our lane, though. Years, to be fair. I mean, it is our thing, yeah, like, across Latin America, we've done, this is like what the U.S. has done around the world, but what's so stunning is when you watch media coverage whenever Syria's in the news, it's as though the U.S. has just been sitting on the sidelines, like, observing neutrally um, as children are being massacred across Syria, when in fact the U.S. has been playing a dominant role in perpetuating the conflict in Syria. The conflict could have ended far sooner you wouldn't have had this global refugee crisis that, like, destabilized the West, especially uh, Europe, had it not been for the U.S. actions that took place in Syria with its regional allies. I mean, it seems kind of like a huge thing to leave out, um, to omit, but you never hear about this. Yeah, minor detail, but you never hear about this. And so that's why it's so funny when Samantha Power um or nikki haley or anybody in the u.s government past and present is like we have to do something about syria it's like well i mean we are we have been yeah there's a lot of awful things that take place around the world in fact a lot of those awful things taking place are things that u.s is perpetuating as well for example the war in yemen that's created a famine in that country where millions of people are starving and children like a child dies every 10 minutes because of that saudi u.s caused famine and the cholera epidemic in that country that is like of epic proportions, the biggest humanitarian catastrophe in the world. I mean, and, and so this is like funny that the purveyor of such extreme violence, not just I naming mean, one country, is, is suggesting that, you know, people involved in, in, in the U.S. administration or, you know, past and present are suggesting that somehow it's the U.S.'s responsibility to deal with certain bad things in certain parts of the world while it's actually creating so much violence in other parts of the world. It's just insane. And it's absurd and so hypocritical.
0: But wait, I thought that the entire Senate, didn't they vote for their resolution condemning Saudi Arabia's treatment (laughs) of, uh, you know, actions in Yemen? Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee and Chris Murphy had a Yemen resolution that would have uh, ended the U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. And it was actually kind of bipartisan and Mm -hmm. it failed. By a 55 to 44 margin, a majority of Republicans and some Democrats effectively said the U.S. can still help Riyadh by refueling its planes and providing intelligence in the Saudis' brutal air campaign. Supporters of the resolution claimed it would immediately end America's involvement in the war. Critics said it wouldn't. And, you know, I'm just reading from Vox. This is not like a Max Blumenthal piece or a Rania Kallik piece or a Ben (laughs) Warren piece or The Real News. They say the conflict has claimed more than 13,500 lives. Many of them in airstrikes, roughly 20 million Yemenis need humanitarian assistance to meet basic needs, including food and water. Out of a pre-war population of 28 million and nearly 1 million people are suffering from cholera. However, conditions are so bad there that it is hard to have a reliable tally of any of these measures, which means the situation could be much, much worse.
1: Yeah, and like yesterday, the, yesterday, like the Saudis bombed a wedding. Um, but I just saw the Saudis bombed a wedding yesterday and killed like 20 people and possibly more but the point i mean i to be fair the u.s did sort of make that tactic popular
0: that was our move so. in afghanistan right was it <laughs> totally. afghanistan bombing Iraq weddings or both? and funerals yeah
1: so i think it was both but mostly like bombing weddings and funerals is like a really big american pastime. i think yeah it's um, baseball
0: bombing uh <laughs> weddings and bombing funerals yeah <laughs>
1: totally totally but it's just i mean the the war in yemen has actually those are you named, you named a number of like thirteen thousand something those are people who've been killed in airstrikes, and of course, they're saying they're not sure if it's probably more than that. But also, I believe there's like a tally of something like 50,000 people dying of um, of like lack of access to medicine and food and basic things like that, um, and of cholera. I mean, it's right—you've seen the photos from Yemen. I mean, it's yeah. like skeleton children. It's right. the saddest thing in the world, and it kind of makes you realize back in the 90s when we had sanctions against Iraq and babies were dying of starvation and lack of medicine. And you had photos of that and, like, no one did anything to stop it. And you wonder, well, how was that possible? Well, look at Yemen today and you can see how that's possible.
0: Well, that's because we were saving the Iraqis from being removed from incubators, which never happened, but which the U.S. media (laughs) said happened when we were drumming up support of the war. So you, you have a piece in RT, which means I really shouldn't have you on my show because you love <laughs> Putin. You wrote this thing, which is like so important. It's such a great headline. U.S. media loves war more than they hate Trump and egg him on to strike Syria. Gabe and I were talking about this. How do you want this guy who you call demented? Why do you want him to be bombing anywhere? Like
1: It's, it's crazy. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense every day of the year. Except for when Trump is bombing things, he's a madman. Right. He needs to be removed from office. We can't trust him to do anything. He needs to be impeached. He's crazy. He's going to cause a nuclear holocaust. Like we should be scared. And we should be scared. Trump is a dangerous man. Yeah, he is, right. He is crazy. Um, he's clearly very unstable, and he's surrounded by psychotic warhawks. Right. Yeah. Uh, and those, I mean, on that, I agree with liberals. But then suddenly, when it comes to Trump, like bombing something. The it's what you read from Samantha power becomes a thing. It's like, look a Trump is not good, I agree, but we gotta bomb Syria. So Yeah. You know, it's the like,
0: more important thing is to bomb Syria. Uh,
1: yeah, it's just so it's like basically at the end of the day, all these people who are who are liberals, who are part of the anti Trump resistance have just demonstrated that they're that they're full of crap. Like right. I, I can't take anything else you say seriously. Either that or they just don't care about American empire and American imperialism. That's like that's where their resistance stops.
0: But, um, Rania, oh, that's actually really white like, privileged of you, white male privilege of you yeah. to care about uh, people who live outside the United States. You need to check your white male privilege.
1: I know. I need to work. I really need to work. I tell myself that every day when I look into the mirror. Good. Um, I'm working on it. It's a Change work in starts, yeah, but, within. <laughs> but I think um, the other thing is, something that's important to remember is that a lot of these same people who are cheering Trump on when he bombs things but hate him the rest of the days of the year, a lot of these same people... One of their biggest issues with Donald Trump when he was running wasn't necessarily his racism at first, although people were, you know, crit- critical of his racism, you know, and his Islamophobia. Um, but a lot of it was a lot of these same liberals were upset that Donald Trump was, um, you know, saying these sort of anti-interventionist uh, slogans, even mm. though obviously he didn't mean any of them. Right. Um, but he was saying, you know, we got to stop going to war. He was criticizing the Iraq war as being a bad idea. Obviously, his criticisms weren't very um, deep. Right, or, or genuine, uh, they appealed, yeah. they appealed to his, he was appealing to his faith. Right. But the point is, is you had these constant, like, terrified liberals being like, oh my God, he's an isolationist. Oh my God. If only, like,
0: honestly, yeah.
1: Maybe not bomb as many countries. Um. And so it's kind of these same people now who hate, they still hate Trump, and they hate him for a lot of the right reasons. But, of course, then he's like, I'm going to bomb something or I'm going to destroy something. And they're like, yeah, presidential. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So can you talk (laughs) to us about the chemical uh, weapons attacks and what we know about them? I mean, it's it's amazing to me how little coverage this has received.
1: No, I wouldn't agree if there was a chemical weapons attack. I still don't think the U.S. should be bombing countries. Yeah. Um, But the whole premise of why they bombed was done before there had been a proper investigation to even determine a whether an attack took place. And B, if it attack did took place, who was responsible? And that investigation has yet to be carried out. Um, and so the fact that this was done in such a rush before the results of that investigation uh, were complete uh, should raise red flags immediately. Um, because if you're going to be saying the U.S. should be punishing governments that do bad things, that we've proved they did the bad thing that they're being accused of, right? Right. Uh, and with the chemical weapons attack in Syria, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of the Western narrative. First of all, Western intelligence agents you know, have a history of lying mm-hmm. about weapons of mass destruction. Um, but beyond that, in the specific case of what took place in Duma, in east in the area of eastern Ghouta in Syria, um, the Syrian government was on the verge of defeating the uh, insurgents of Jaish al-Islam, which is the Salafi jihadist group that controlled uh, the controlled Duma, which is the biggest city in eastern Huta. Just to give you some background, Daish al is a pretty nasty group, uh, funded mostly by Saudi Arabia, um, who leader Zahran al-Lush, uh, often talks about ethnically cleansing, um, or genociding, uh, Christians and Alawites from Damascus. Uh, and they actually kidnapped a bunch of minority civilians, Alawite civilians, um, uh, around the area and held them for years, forced, made them do forced labor and at one point paraded them in the streets, uh, in cages to be used as human shields. They did this on video and posted it proudly on social media. These are like your, your beautiful, lovely rebels that you often hear about. Mm-hmm. That's who was in control of Duma for all these years. They're actually not that much different in their rhetoric and tactics than ISIS. Um, although they just don't do beheading videos. But, the point is, is that that's who this fight was between. It was between the fighters of Jaish al-Islam and the Syrian Army. And the Syrian Army was on the verge of defeating them, and they were actually also involved in intense negotiations at the time. Uh, and they had actually agreed to a negotiated settlement, but then Jaish al-Islam reneged on that and started shelling Damascus in response. To Damascus started uh, heavily bombarding Duma, and it was this was sort of in, the, in this context you started hearing claims of uh, chemical weapons attacks. Now, there's been a pattern in Syria that's happened on several occasions that whenever the insurgents are on the verge of being defeated, they make um, these bombastic claims about chemical weapons attacks. Uh, and sometimes it gets picked up by the media, and they run with it, and then sometimes it doesn't. And the whole point of this is obviously because they want to provoke intervention because they're on the verge of defeat, and the only way they can win is if, out- if outsiders come and intervene on their behalf. Right. Um, in this case, Western governments. Now, in the case of Duma, the Syrian government was on the verge of defeating them. They had no reason, either tactically, they had no reason tactically to need to use chemical weapons. They had, they were using plenty of conventional weapons and defeating them, defeating them easily with conventional weapons. Right. Which, by the way, do a lot more damage than chemical weapons. Mm. Um, but for some reason, people get really upset about uh, the specific use of chemical weapons, which I never really understood that because there's other weapons that are conventional that do a lot more damage. But anyways... Right. Uh, So there was no, there was no tactical, um, benefit to using chemical weapons, but on top of that, it would be suicidal because you've had Western governments repeatedly say this is the red line in Syria. Right. Um, and so to, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Syrian government's a lot of things, but it's not stupid. Yeah, it's, well, it's Um, also not
0: a rash. I mean, that people love pretending that, like, you know, all middle eastern dictators or leaders or regimes or administrations whatever you want to call them that all of them or um are the same like fundamentalist irrational like potent- would be suicide bombers basically um yeah. that's why yeah. they were able to sell not that um not that osama bin laden was a suicide bomber he just paid for other people to do it but uh that's how they were <laughs> able to sell right like Like, he was an entrepreneur. He was an an angel. Um, That's how they were able (laughs) to sell the idea that Saddam Hussein and and, um, Osama bin Laden were were allies and working together. Because if anyone knows anything Mm -hmm. about politics, Middle Eastern history, you get that, like, a fundamentalist um, does not work or like – does not work with or like a secular Um, Ba'athist. So, again, like, why would – I mean – you, I don't get why Assad and you can hate him. You can even th- say, I would disagree with you, but you could say he is the worst person, um, like the worst leader uh, in power right now. You could say that, but it still doesn't yeah. make sense why he would do that because it's so politically unwise. And this isn't a guy who's not, you know, for better or for worse, he's a rational actor. Um, mm-hmm. So, and also. But I would agree. Yeah. Well, I
1: would agree. Yeah.
0: Imagine well, that, Ron other, and I like, agree.
1: Yeah
0: stop the presses i know
1: shocking but it's like, you know you th- think we agree on? there's another thing which
0: is that this didn't get any i didn't hear about this until recently that this is a little piece in, at the ap defense secretary jim mattis said back in february on february 2nd we have other reports from the battlefield from people who claim it's been used speaking of uh chemical weapons sarin we mm-hmm. do not have evidence of it We're looking for evidence of it since clearly we are dealing with the Assad regime that has used denial and deceit to hide their outlaw actions. Shouldn't that be a bigger deal?
1: You also have to remember there's also evidence that the insurgents have the capability of carrying out chemical weapons attacks and they have on certain occasions. So you do have instances where like insurgents have tried to stage things. Um In the past, but there's a lot of relook. There's the whole point of this is not to say I know what happened because I don't. I'm right. not some like chemical weapons expert. I didn't go on the ground and and collect samples and talk to witnesses and get to the bottom of what happened. That should be done, right? But yes. there's a, like there's plenty of reasons to be skeptical at the very least, right? Or don't you want to find the evidence
0: that- first? That, like find evidence, right? Find evidence first, strike later,
1: right? And just the fact, the mere idea of questioning the official narrative of of demonstrating some skepticism, which by the way as journalists is our job. We're yeah. supposed to be skeptical um and ask for evidence. But anyways, for the fact just, just the mere the mere act of doing that um gets you treated like you're wearing a tinfoil hat. Like you're some like nine eleven truther who's like running around talking about how like, you know, I don't know who assassinated Jay? i just like it's just like yeah it's, it's so it's, hard to even you know cite those absurd. because
0: uh so many of them are true right but sure yeah, like true. um fluoride is going to kill you or something fluoride and toothpaste
1: or like chemtrails or like chemtrails. yeah chemtrails like, just, trails, like, that's a good one yeah. crazy, you know like, yeah. i'm trying to find the most absurd like you know it's just or like aliens like exist among us, or maybe you know people who say obama's a
0: muslim lochness monster what if you hung up <laughs> on me because you were like a big lochness monster believer you were a lochness monster truther
1: what if that was more like I stopped?
0: Like, I cannot, I can't sanction that.
1: No, no, but what if, what if I like got upset that you said that? I'm like, wait a second, Katie, now you're just talking nonsense. Yeah, that's the <laughs> like, line and you That's hung actually up. a thing. Yeah. That's a thing. Yeah. I know, I'm like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm done with the show. Yeah. The longest monster is a thing. It is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: real and it's a problem.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, one person dies every year, maybe, allegedly. From
0: being chomped, chomped yeah. <laughs>
1: But there's Please, even, a, oh, yeah, means, sorry. Can't no, no, off. you go ahead, you go ahead. I like, I'm too laughing
0: well, now. I well, can. no, like I, there's a piece <laughs> in The Hill, again, not on uh you know, it's sad. I was going to say non-democracy now, but we'll talk about that later because democracy now is not exactly the voice of skepticism it once was when it comes to Syria and Russia. Russia. But um, there's a piece Shame. in The Hill that says, Mattis, U.S. still assessing suspected chemical weapons attack. And that was from April 11th. <laughs> So, like, why isn't this scary or why isn't this getting, again, you don't have <laughs> it to, be. you don't even have to oppose intervention to want to know whether or not these stories are true.
1: Right. And it's really concerning too, cause it's like, you watch the, you watch, I mean, those are like little nuggets that kind of make their way into media reports. I haven't been in the U.S. in like a year, Katie. So I've been far removed from the media domestically in this country because like CNN International is a little bit different. So, I feel like since I've landed, I've just from the airport to like hotel lobbies to restaurants. I've just been like bombarded with CNN constantly. It's like always on. It's like they're trying to reprogram you with CNN or something. Speaking of conspiracy theories. But anyways, um, but no, it's like you watch, I have just like constantly been watching the news because of what was happening in Syria. And that's one thing that's so striking is it's like, Just repeated it as though it did happen and we do have evidence for it so many times that it becomes a truth. It's like truth by repetition.
0: Even this defense one piece, the headline is Mattis confirms chemical weapons attack in Syria, but no Trump decision to strike yet. That's the headline. And then the opening mm-hmm. is Defense Secretary Jim Mattis told lawmakers he believes a chemical weapon attack occurred in Syria yeah. last weekend, but the Trump administration was still assessing conclusive evidence. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, we You still... know what's also
1: crazy, Katie, is that that evidence, by the way, that, like, the U.S. was saying they had evidence, all of that was social media posts. Mm. Um, that's the U.S.'s evidence that they've, that they've listed publicly, is social media posts. That was posted, by the way, by groups. Uh, that received funding from the U.S. State Department.
0: Gotta so, pay them bills. The
1: list of reasons, the list of reasons to be skeptical, like, grows longer the more you talk about this issue. And so, yeah, like, again, even if people are pro-intervention in this instance, like, at the very least, could we not intervene before we have, like, evidence, like, independently verifiable evidence right. of an attack? And in this case, it's a little bit different because, um, unlike the attack last year, which took place in Khan Bloom, which is in Idlib, which is under the control of insurgents. This is the first time where, after the insurgents make a claim of chemical weapons attack, they've actually been forced out of the area. Uh, which are actually, like, also chemical weapons inspectors from the OPCW were actually able to come in and collect um, and, and collect uh, samples directly from the site of the alleged attack. Because in the past, it's like chain of the chain of custody of samples has gone through biased organizations. Or in this case, I can just get it directly, uh, which they did over the weekend. Um, so anyway, there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that we'll have to keep up with as soon as these results come in. But the point is that you should be skeptical, especially when it comes to issues of war. And then also, you know, when it comes to this Assadist label, I mean, I feel like there's – I get so many messages from people who are like, I totally agree with you, but I just can't say it publicly. Yeah. Like, it has done so much damage to the anti-war left. The anti-war left is so weak and is actually very, in many cases, silent. People who would be natural anti-war voices either stay silent or just kind of give into the pressure because of how damaging um, and, like, severe this, this like, label of the Assadist has been in the case of Syria. And it's really, it's just, I, I used to actually, for a long time, I kept, like, kind of a bit quiet about Syria because it, I didn't want to get attacked. Mm. So I kind of understand, I understand that sentiment as well. But you know what? Like, also I have family in Syria. And people, people all these years have suffered immensely because of US policy in that country. And so it's just really a huge shame that pro-war agitators have managed to do this thing where they've just like split the left and left people so confused and so scared to speak out
0: this is what happened to you because you were speaking out and I'm really glad this happened because you deserve to be uh, smeared and blacklisted even more than you have I do which is the um, southern poverty law center posted an article on their hate watch blog entitled the multipolar spin how fascists operationalize left wing resentment and they named you uh, Ben Norton Max Blumenthal
1: I kind like of feel like you should have been named in a, in a... I mean...
0: I know. I don't want to talk about <laughs> it. I'm really embarrassed. It's like I feel like a total failure and underachiever. I mean, mm,
1: you got to do better. I
0: know. I know. Um, so so they- Make sure you listen to our bonus episode, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. There, Rania responds to your questions from Twitter and being smeared by the Southern Poverty Law Center making Rania Khalek the first Lebanese-American Druze woman to be exposed as a white supremacist. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much to Rania Khalek. You can find her on Twitter at Rania Khalek, R-A-N-I-A-K-H-A-L-E-K. And you can find her writing at raniakhalek.com. You can find Rania's work at the Electronic Intifada, Truthout, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Al Jazeera America, The Nation, Salon, Alternate Vice, and more.